I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, this is the Mark series, part 20, and we're talking in this passage of the Gospel of Mark about the murder of John the Baptist. And in this passage, we learn a lot of stuff. There's some very sobering lessons for us about our Christian walk and about things like persecution, what kind of things we should expect as we serve the Lord in ministry. Sometimes our expectations are our downfall in those things. Um, But there's also some interesting historical apologetic stuff that we'll get into as well. So may uh, God give us wisdom. As we dig in, Mark 6, starting in verse 14, we'll take this passage kind of section at a time here. It says, and King Herod heard of it. Let me just pause and let you know. What is he hearing? He's hearing all that stuff in Mark we've heard so far. It's, he's hearing about Jesus traveling around, doing miracles, and the disciples of Jesus going out two by two and spreading the name of Christ. And when they did their miracles, they did their miracles in the name of Christ. That was last week. We talked about that. So that the name of Jesus is being known better and better. And Herod, the king, he hears of it. And it says here in verse 14, For his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Now, we're going to come back to King Herod in a minute. Um, his whole idea that he, he starts to focus on, we'll get in the next verse, is that Jesus is John the Baptist risen. That's like he's hooked and stuck on that. We'll talk about why and all that in a minute. First, though, I want to talk about what the uh, big picture is. The big picture is this. The name of Jesus is being proclaimed, and now rumors about Jesus are starting to spread people trying to interpret who Jesus is. So this is kind of like what happens every, every year nowadays around Christmas and Easter when secular media puts out the who is the real Jesus videos. They, they, you know, we get this all the time every year, it seems. Uh, it's like, who is he really? And they were doing these kind of discussions. Who is he really? Now, zooming out even further, we see the context of the whole book of Mark. In the book of Mark, there is a major, major focus on who is Jesus. It's from the beginning all the way to the very end. This is what Mark largely is focused on, is who is this Christ? And so we see, because we know it's um, a focus in Mark, because this is in there, we have like an interesting tool in our study of Mark, which we've been using, which is we look at the events that Jesus engages in, the things he does, his acts, and we interpret that as commentary on the identity of Christ. Why? Because it's a theme in Mark. Who is Jesus? And he's telling us who Jesus is by what Jesus does. So for instance, Jesus he calms the storm. And then we read these Old Testament passages that imply this is Yahweh's job. Jesus forgives sin, but only God can forgive sin. Jesus, he comes after the forerunner, John goes before him, and he's coming. And in Mark 1, we're we're, we're getting quotations from Old Testament passages when it's actually Yahweh that's coming. And so Mark is giving us who Jesus is. But the people here, they don't understand all this yet. So they're debating who is Jesus. Um, And that's the theme in Mark. Catch that, that that's a major theme in Mark. That's important because many more liberal theologian guys will want to suggest that that that's not happening in the Gospel of Mark. But we see it consistently. We see it in the passage. And just so you know, if if some liberal scholar tells you, Mark is saying this and Mark means this, but you're reading Mark with your own eyes. Trust your own eyes. Because sometimes it's just the simplest little mistakes that these guys are making. And you can just see it by reading it, because fortunately you have it in your own language. Um, So we're going to take these in reverse order, these three theories of who Jesus might be. He might be a prophet, he might be Elijah, he might be John risen from the dead. We'll take these in reverse order. Let's start with a prophet. He might be a prophet. Why would they think Jesus is a prophet? Well, this is easy, right? I don't really need to explain this to you. He's coming and he's teaching things and he's doing miracles. He's proclaiming God's will for people and he's doing these miracles. So obviously they're thinking he's a prophet. Uh, But there's great significance to this that you don't notice without some perhaps intertestamental historical information. (laughs) Fancy stuff. Intertestamental meaning between Malachi and Matthew. The stuff that happened for like that 300 plus years where there was no scripture being written. What was going on with the Jewish people? What happened in their minds and their views and their understanding of things like prophecy? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but the Jews at this point were thinking, at least many of them, were thinking that prophecy had ceased that there just weren't any more prophets. So for John and then Jesus to show up was really remarkable. They don't expect any more prophets. So we get this in 1 Maccabees 9.27. 1 Maccabees is an intertestamental book. 
it's part of what um, what Protestants would call the Apocrypha and what Catholics would call the Deuterocanon. Uh, basically, these are, this is one of the books that is in the Catholic Bible that's not in the Protestant Bible or in the Jewish uh, Old Testament, the Jewish Hebrew Bible. So it's not in either of those. We would consider the historical work, but not a prophetic work. But look at what 1 Maccabees 9.27 tells us about their attitude towards prophecy. It says, So there was great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when prophets ceased to appear among them. The worst distress since the time prophets ceased to appear among them. This is in 1 Maccabees, writing about 150 BC, talking about these events with Antiochus Epiphanes and all this crazy stuff that I won't get into today. Terrible historical things that happened to the Jewish people. And they're saying, hey, prophecy had ceased. They even knew about it at that time, that it was over. This is one of the, re- one of the arguments that, for instance, um, non-Catholics would give for why we don't include this in prophecy. First Maccabees doesn't even think it's prophecy. It's like, pro- it, it writes, prophecy had ceased. So if it's right, then it's not prophecy. And if it's wrong, then it's not prophecy. So either way, it's not. We don't take it as being that kind of thing. Josephus actually mentions this as well. Josephus writes about the Jewish people. He's a first century Jewish historian. And he writes about the Jewish people and their attitude towards their book, right? Or their books, you might say. He actually gives us our oldest Jewish canon or list of like authoritative scriptures. And he lists them. And it turns out to be the same books that we have in our Old Testament today. Not the ones that in modern Catholicism that they also include. Those aren't in Josephus's list. That seems to be a later edition. Uh, but that's not my focus today. I'm just mentioning it in passing. The thing is, though, Josephus mentions that the failure of the exact succession of the prophets is like a thing. There's this thing, the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. That just There isn't this going forth of prophets anymore in the people of Israel. So why is this significant? Because they look at Jesus and they're thinking, he's a prophet. It wouldn't be easy for the people to think a new prophet showed up with that mentality that they had. Jesus is just doing things where it's just, it's like a grassroots thing. People just see him, they meet him, they hear him, they watch him, and they're like, maybe he's a prophet. He's he's a prophet. In some cases, they think he's a prophet of old. I wonder if one of the reasons why they thought he was a prophet of old, why they connected him to old prophets, is because they weren't expecting any new prophets. So they somehow connected him to an old prophet. That's just a guess on my part. I'm not really sure why they did that. Second option, they say maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet, so why not just say he's a prophet? Why say he's a prophet? Maybe he's Elijah. Because he was a specific kind of prophet, a specific individual, and they believed that Elijah was going to come back and continue his ministry and that this would happen before the coming of Messiah. This was something that they, that they believed. This, this is something we see in the New Testament, that Elijah comes first. It comes up several times in the Gospels, the idea that Elijah is supposed to show up before the Messiah does. In the modern Jewish Passover, we also see this. In the, the way that they do the Passover today, it's not exactly like what we read about in Scripture. They do that, but they add a whole lot of extra traditions to it. So in a modern Jewish Passover, it has a lot of extra, um, extra things. It's like a little play that goes, that goes on during that day. So what they'll do is, at their table, where they have the Passover meal, they'll set up one extra chair. And that chair stays empty, and nobody sits there. They put a glass of wine there. It's for Elijah. At some point during the Passover, they'll send, usually send one of the kids to run to the door and fling open the door and see if Elijah has come. Like they're not thinking, all thinking Elijah's going to show up. It's, it's, a, it's a routine. It's a tradition to try to remind them, teach them of things, right? And the idea is Elijah's supposed to come back and he's supposed to herald the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus, he actually answers for us who Elijah is. He said it's John. Jesus says, if, if you're willing to receive it, John was Elijah who is to come. Speaking of like a present and future activity of Elijah because there's a first and second coming of Christ. So there's a very interesting whole study you can do there. But you can see why in their minds they're like, well, maybe it's Elijah. Well, John filled that role. He heralded the coming of the Messiah. He said so himself. I'm the one, you know, bearing witness and uh, bringing forth ultimately this this one. So then we're left with our third question. Why would they say he's John risen from the dead? This is really, I, I I don't fully have an answer here, but here's some thoughts. Um, these are rumors about Jesus. These are not people who know him well. I don't think any of the disciples thought he was John risen from the dead, partially because they know that Jesus and John were doing things at the same time. But when you're hearing rumors about Christ secondhand and you're getting it, the message carried from person to person to person, who knows what you're thinking? 
Who knows what your theories are? Who knows what your ideas are? These are probably the, the kinds of things people would say when they're strangers to Jesus or they're far away from Jesus. Um, is this evidence that they easily believed in things like resurrection? Uh, no, I don't think. In fact, we're not even sure what they meant by John risen from the dead. What did that mean? The spirit of John is upon him? Were they thinking that, uh, who, I, and, I, and I've done some research on this, and it's like the commentators are like, yeah, we're not really sure what they meant by this. This is a little confusing to us as well. Um, those, those, though, who believed that Jesus rose later weren't like the people who were thinking John was resurrected at this point. People thinking that Jesus was John resurrected were far removed from Jesus' ministry, most likely. They don't know much about what Jesus is doing except the rumors they're hearing about him. And they connect him to John probably because they have similar messages. Repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. They're carrying the same ministry forward. Jesus is taking it to the next level, but it's the same kind of preaching that John had. And so they're seeing a connection between Jesus and John. They see many of John's disciples following Jesus. So maybe there's these rumors, these confusion that's going on. But with the resurrection of Jesus, it's radically different. You see... Those who believed that Jesus rose were those who knew him the best, not those who were the furthest away from him. It'd be one thing to convince strangers that some weird thing happened in some faraway town, right? You just need some superstitious people to believe that sort of thing. But we're talking about believing that your own brother died and rose again and being willing to die for that belief. That's James, by the way, right? Or Paul, who was a violent persecutor of the church, who has his own experience with the risen Christ and converts as a result. And so we have this, uh, there's just a big difference between the two kinds of things. Uh, Those proclaiming Jesus' resurrection, they were those who knew him, and they were even converted by it, like James and Paul, converted by the experience of seeing Christ alive from the dead. So we we see a big difference here. Um, There's a lot of parallel to modern times, though, between these things. He's a prophet, he's Elijah, he's John, you know, raised. What's going on? The parallel to modern times is that in modern days, not only do we have like secular media trying to portray Jesus as an obscene preacher or whatever obscene thing they come up with next that's not historical (laughs) or reasonable, but what we have probably more commonly amongst just like our friends and family is the idea that Jesus was like, he was just a good man or Jesus was a Buddhist. Have you heard this before? I've heard this from who? Buddhists. They say Jesus was a Buddhist. Or have you heard that Jesus was a Muslim? I've heard uh, Zakir Naik, who is a Muslim apologist who puts out content online all the time, and he declares that Jesus was a Muslim. How do you know he was a Muslim? Because Jesus was a great man of God. Therefore, he was a Muslim. You can see the, how solid this apologetics is <laughs> coming from... Anyway, it's, it's strange. You know, you just read about Jesus. You read, this is obviously not the case. Others say Jesus was a New Age guru. He was a New Age guru. Who do you hear that from? New Agers, right? Oh, Jesus was a new... What, why? Because Jesus fits whatever I want him to fit. Jesus, he's the great chameleon of religion. Whatever I am, he just matches me. Whatever, whatever I want him to be a good man, he's just a good man. I want him to be just whatever. That's what he is. Some say he's like a magician. I heard someone suggest that Jesus was perhaps doing something like magic tricks when he was causing people to you know, seem to rise from the dead or seem to be healed of various diseases, that it was basically magic tricks. Who do I hear this from? I heard it from a skeptic who's a magician. That sounds convenient, except you can't tease it out when you actually read about Christ and try to put his real story into those theories. Buddhist, New Age, Muslim, magician. This doesn't work. This just doesn't work with the reality of who Christ was at all. It's just kind of wishful thinking. Um, but it leads me to an, an observation. Very few people, there are some, who will just be like, Jesus wasn't even, he wasn't even, he was just a normal guy, nothing special about his life. There, or they'll say he didn't exist at all, like the Jesus mythicist movement. And this does exist, especially on the internet. Um, it's not supported by reality or good scholarship or anything like that. But beyond just those super dis- dismissive attitudes, everybody else feels like they're confronted in Jesus with something they have to explain. There's something about Jesus, right? Like when nobody's going to look at, at, at my life or your life and be like, who was he? Right? Because what about our lives is, is, is so amazing that someone feels they have to explain it. But with Jesus, everybody feels like they have to explain this. We're like confronted with the person of Christ going, I got to make sense of this. Who, who is this guy? How, how, how are the things accomplished 
that have been accomplished through him or because of him? How is this, how is this the reality of things? We get this in the Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud. They record that Jesus did miracles, but they attribute it to Satan, to sorcery. Interesting, they were doing this when he was alive, too. They said he cast out demons by the power of Satan. But in the Jewish Talmud, they, 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 now this is written much later. It's a much later thing. But here's the interesting thing. Why doesn't the Talmud say, Jesus never did miracles? Like, if they want to fight against Messiah, fight against Jesus, why don't they just say he never did anything special? Instead, they're like, yeah, he did miracles, but it was through sorcery. And you're like, well, that's interesting, because it's kind of like you're saying, he did miracles. And this is what we call enemy attestation. This is like the opposing side accidentally giving you things that help your case. That's kind of the idea, that thing that's going on here. That's in, by the way, if you want to read it on your own, you can. It's in Sanhedrin 43a, the Babylonian Talmud, which is, which is the, that's, that's the source you want. You want to use the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Sanhedrin 43a, if you'd like to look it up. They say that he was killed for sorcery and enticing Israel to apostasy. So Jesus presents us with a puzzle to solve. That's my point. And that's what they're wrestling with. Who is Jesus? We have to reconcile this guy with our understanding of this guy. How do we reconcile these things? We have miracles, the miracles of Christ. And you might be surprised to know this, but even a lot of non-Christian historians will acknowledge that Jesus performed at least something very much like miracles. Because we have a lot of examples of, of historical information about Christ. And his life doesn't make sense apart from the miracle stories having some kind of validity to them. So now they might go to their worldview to try to say, well, it must have been a trick. Or, no, I think it could have been really supernatural, but now it's just a worldview assumption. What they do gather is the data to say, something like a miracle happened with Jesus over and over again. He had this reputation. He did something like a real exorcism or a fake exorcism. He did something like that. That historically happened. So we have to kind of put this stuff together. But we can add more. We can add, so not only the apparent miracles of Jesus, we can add things like prophecy. The fact that Christ comes and seems to fulfill prophecy in the Old Testament. And people sometimes tie themselves in knots trying to get away from the prophecy Christ fulfilled. Well, he did that on purpose, right? He did that on purpose. And like, I would actually agree he did it on purpose. It was all his plan. I don't see how that gets you out of the fact that he fulfilled prophecy. The question is, could anybody do that on purpose? And the answer, of course, is no. Or, well, that was written after the fact. Well, that has been blown out of the water through his, through a textual research. Like we know none of that was written after the fact. It was all written ahead of time. It was all written quite in detail ahead of time. Um, so yeah, there's, we have the prophecy that Christ seems to fulfill. Then we have eyewitness proclamations, people who are willing to lay their lives down seemingly with no other motive than that they really believe they saw Christ risen from the dead. They really believe that these things are true about Christ. We have the rise of Christianity, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if it was just fabricated. We have the conversion of individuals like Saul and James that I already spoke of. Paul, Saul. And then alternate theories are so lacking. When it comes to, say, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, I like what um, the skeptic Bart Ehrman says about it. He suggested to his students in his class, don't try to offer an alternate explanation to the historical evidence for the resurrection. Because they'll just tear you apart. Because... Here we have something where it, it all fits. If Jesus rose, all this evidence works. It, it all makes total sense. It has what's called explanatory scope and explanatory power. It explains the evidence well and explains a lot, a whole lot of evidence with one solution, which is the two things you're looking for, two of the things you're looking for in historical research. So it has explanatory scope, it has explanatory power, and then alternate theories just fall short. Well, they were hallucinating. And you're like, well, let's look at these studies on hallucinations and how they correspond to the claim that these guys were hallucinating and it doesn't really work. Or, oh, there was a conspiracy, and it doesn't explain the conversion of the enemies of Christ, nor of the fact that they held to such a conspiracy, or how they even pulled it off in that environment. Um, so those things tend to fall apart. So I just love this. I love the idea that here in, here in Mark, we're getting Jesus' life and miracles are confronting people with a, with a conundrum, and they have to explain who he is, and they're getting the wrong answer. But they're at least being confronted with a puzzle. And this is, this is almost like what happens is people are on their way to Christ. When they start to ask seriously, who really is Jesus? And they start to look at it and they read it for themselves and they examine. And they're like, well, let me really try to understand who Christ is. What really happened in the first century with Jesus? What's the real truth behind this thing? And if they're not just going to, um, you know, some random resource where they're just going to get spoon-fed 
whatever they want to hear, but if they study on their own, I feel like they get a lot closer to Christ. Um, then we have the issue of the Herods. Okay, so King Herod heard of it, and then he has a theory, John the Baptist. Let me mention a couple Herods, because in the Bible, there are a bunch of guys named Herod. Herod ends up being kind of a title, kind of a family title, but there's a, just two that I'll mention briefly. One is Herod the Great. This is the one you probably think of when you hear the word Herod. Herod the Great was the guy who was in charge when Jesus was born. He tried to kill the infants in Bethlehem. He, he had the Bethlehem slaughter of the infants. That was him. He was a Roman-appointed king of Judea, meaning the whole region, all of Judea, right, Israel, he's in charge. He's the boss of all that stuff. And he's supposed to be the king of the Jews, although he may have been Jewish by conversion, but he wasn't by ancestry. He was probably an Edomite, or at least half Edomite or something. I don't know the rest. I can't remember, actually. Um, he was appointed in 37 BC, and he ruled until about 4 BC. And so here's Herod. He's the guy who's in charge. Herod was a really well-liked guy to the Romans. The Romans liked him. They had a really good relationship with Herod. He was very into building things and building the glory of Rome. And one of the things he built, along with aqueducts and theaters and all sorts of buildings and even cities, he built to Caesar. And what do you name a city when you build it to Caesar? Caesarea, right? That's why there's lots of Caesareas. They're all built to Caesar. (laughs) Caesarea, Philippi. There's all these different locations. Well, Herod built one thing in particular that you've probably seen photos of and which actually has elements of it, elements of it still standing. And that is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem along with the temple. Now, there was already an existing temple. It had been built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. It had been revamped during the Hasmonean period sometime later. And then Herod came and basically rebuilt and expanded the whole thing. So we don't consider it a new temple. We consider it like the next season in the existence of the second temple. So it's called the second temple period while that was around. And that's the temple that was destroyed after the time of Christ by the Romans. Herod's the guy that built it, not by himself, obviously. He just made other people do it, which is, which is what politicians mean when they say, I'm going to build something. What they mean is someone else builds it and I get the credit. Um, and so Herod, Herod built these things. If you go to Israel now, you can see these massive things they called Herodian stones. Herodian stones. Catch it? They're Herodians. It's, Herod gets all the credit. So these, these giant stones, massive multi-ton stones that are used to comprise the Temple Mount, what they did was they actually built up on the, on the mountain itself in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a set of hills and mountains. And they built up a large platform which would extend the surface area where you could have a temple and have the courtyard of the temple and have the marketplace and all that stuff. And that's where Jesus went in and he drove out money changers, all that kind of stuff. So Herod is... He's like the big dog of the Herods. Every Herod after him is diminished. They're not kings over the whole area of Judea like he was. They don't have nearly the relationship with Rome that he had. They don't have the power he had. King Herod had that stuff. King Herod also had 10 wives. 10 wives, right? Um, And a lot of kids from those wives, which is why there's so many Herods. Because he was like George Foreman, I guess. He just named all his kids after himself. I'm just joking here. Um, Okay, the second one I want to tell you about is Herod Antipas, and he's the Herod in this story, because Herod the Great is long dead by the point we are here in Mark. Herod's long dead. The the Herod that's around now is Herod Antipas. That's this Herod. He's not called Antipas or Antipater in the text. That's just who we know he is from other history, other historical sources. He has less power than dad, a lot less. He doesn't control all of Judea. He controls Galilee and Perea, which is an area north and then south in, the, in Jerusalem. If you picture Jerusalem, it looks kind of like California on a map, you know, but smaller. And he, he controls an area here and here. I, I know that doesn't help you, but I tried. Um, he's not a king, technically. He's tetrarch. He wanted to be a king. He tried to be king. He had people calling him king, as we get here, King Herod. Locally in Galilee, you'd call him king. But as far as Rome was concerned, he was not a king. And his constant pushing to be given the title king got him in trouble eventually. That's the guy we read out in verse 16, where it says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, it's very personal to him because he killed John in the same way that he built things, right? He had, or that his dad built things. He, he, um, he had someone else do it, but he takes credit. Now, this immediately brings up an apologetics moment because someone reading the text says, how would you know what Herod thought? This isn't what history looks like. This is what it looks like when you make stuff up. Because you know the secret thoughts of people's minds. Um, And that's the accusation. Uh, What's very interesting here is that 
if it wasn't for the Gospel of Luke, we wouldn't really have an answer for this. We would just have to say, well, maybe Mark somehow knew what Herod was thinking or saying. It doesn't say what he thought. It's what he said. Somehow Mark knew what Herod was saying. How did Mark know it? His source is Peter. Like, where are they getting this information? Well, in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we learn about a list of women who would follow Jesus and who would help Jesus out financially. They would help supply and support his ongoing ministry. In Luke 8, 3, here's a list of them. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. And Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, her husband is Herod's steward. He's the guy who helps out Herod on a very personal, very private level. He's very much in Herod's business. You know, there's two people in the palace, two kinds of people in the palace that know what's going on. There's the rulers and the servants, right? Because the servants are always in attendance and they're overhearing everything. And so here, it's it, very interesting. This is what you call an undesigned coincidence. Now, Luke doesn't put this information about Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart. He doesn't put it anywhere special in the text where he's like telling a story about Herod. And then he mentions, oh yeah, and we had Chusa and Joanna and we had a source there. He just kind of throws it in randomly. It doesn't seem to have an agenda beyond simply recording the fact that they were helping and following um, Christ. But it speaks of the historicity of it. Because when you have two different sources that have two seemingly unconnected elements that make the story make sense, it makes it more likely that the story is true. It's like if you interview two witnesses and their stories overlap in just that way, that it's undesigned, it gives credibility to it. Okay, so that's probably how we know what Herod said. That's one very likely possibility. Uh, next thing we're going to see is that this comes from some guilt in, on Herod's part. His idea about John, about Jesus being John, it comes from some guilt on Herod's part. Perhaps John is actually, uh, Herod is actually the one who starts the rumor that it's John resurrected. It might be that it's coming from Herod, because if the king says it, now everybody's thinking, wait, what? And that may actually be the source of this kind of thinking. Um, so here's the story. Here we go. The murder of John the Baptist. It is the only story in the Gospel of Mark that is not directly about Jesus. Only story in the whole gospel. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John is busted because he's preaching openly against the moral life of a political leader. That almost never happens today. <laughs> I don't know if it's the busted part or the preaching openly part that never happens, but this is something that's not happening too much. Let me tell you what's wrong with this marriage. Herod is married to Herodias. I know it's already awkward just because of their names, <laughs> but, but there's more detail here. Why is this wrong? I'll give you four reasons. One, Herod was already married when he got together with Herodias. He was married to a woman who was the daughter of the king of Nabatea, who is, um, I guess if I invert the map for you, it's like, here's Herod's territory. He's up, got Galilee territory down here, uh, down, sorry, Galilee territory here, Perea's down here, down here's Nabatea. He marries the king who's bordering his territory, the king, not the king, his daughter, the king's daughter. It wasn't that weird, but you'll see how weird it was in a second. Um, now this, him leaving his current wife, to, to, uh, which was this king's daughter, he basically sent her away, he left her, and then he marries this other woman, Herodias. It caused a war between them, these bordering countries. So Nabatea and Perea, they're at war with each other. That's already a problem. Um, second reason why it's wrong, because he left his wife, second reason, Herodias was also married. She left her husband. She left her husband to be with him. They were both married, and then they left each other's spouses to be together. So that was immoral and wrong. Third reason why it's wrong, the husband she left was Herod's half-brother, Philip. Not, a, not in the Bible. There's a Philip's in the Bible. This is not one of them. Herod Antipas's half-brother, that was this girl's husband. So that's also wrong, especially to the Jewish mindset. Especially to the Jewish mindset. Fourth reason why it was wrong, she was his niece. Could it be more wrong? She was his niece, the daughter of a different half-brother. She was already married to one of her uncles, and now she's married to a different one. She's the daughter of another half-brother, a guy named Aristobulus. He's not around to help or protect her because he was killed by his father, Herod the Great, who killed anybody that looked at him wrong, especially family, because he was very paranoid, especially towards the end. 
and they said it was safer to be his pig than his than his uh, uh, than his family. Um, so it was very wrong. So here's the side note. I often hear we're not voting for a pastor, we're voting for a president. And I understand there's some wisdom in that. I, I realize, you know, like for instance, if, if I need a plumber, I don't just want to go to the church and hire the most spiritual guy I can find. Right? I want a plumber, someone who can plumb. I think that's a word. That's a verb, right? You can say plumb is a verb. I think it's a verb. It should be. If not, it is now. As of now, I do declare. Uh, <laughs> So I get that. I get that I'm not looking in, 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 um, in political leadership. I'm not looking for pastoral leadership. But that doesn't mean I'm not looking for character. Right? I also, you know, I want a plumber who can plumb, but I want one who's not going to cheat and lie and steal and overcharge me. Right? And, and, and so now it's true that in our political landscape, we actually get to vote for who we want. And that voting is somewhat limited by who can actually get into office and who can't get into office. And I don't always know. Uh, you, we just guess. You know how it is. A lot of us, like me, you're not paying a whole lot of attention to politics until it comes time to vote. Then you feel like, I better dig in there and figure out what's going on so I can make a good, godly vote with, with, you know, with, with, my, with my freedoms and with my responsibility here. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with looking at sitting presidents or those who are running for office and saying, this person is terribly immoral. And preaching against the immorality of that person, that's exactly what John did, and it's what landed him in prison. He is not rebuked for it. Jesus didn't seem to like Herod very much either. We'll get into that in a minute. And he spoke openly. So while I support the leadership of our country, I must acknowledge that we've had some terrible ungodly presidents, and that even our, our current president, President Trump, I, I cringe at the ungodliness that I've seen. And this has nothing to do with his political decisions and everything to do with his character. And I I cringe at it. It it makes me cringe, as it did with the last president. Just makes me cringe. And it should, and if you don't cringe, something's wrong with you. But I'll move on. (laughs) So, side note, I'm just saying, John the Baptist did it, and maybe that's giving us a signal that this is like something to do. How many of the prophets spoke against sitting leadership in their own countries? or even outside their countries, speaking about foreign leaders and about problems with them. So I don't expect him to be a pastor, but every man is accountable for his character. And we're called to um, hold up godly standards, and when our leaders are immoral and we're okay with it, it changes the standards for everybody, doesn't it? All right, verse 19, it says, And Herodias had a grudge against him. That's the woman, right? She has a grudge against John and wanted him, to be, uh, wanted him put to death, but she could not. She couldn't do it. Herod wouldn't let it happen. We'll find out about in a second. But again, I'll just say, right, John did not feel he had to cozy up to spiritual leader or political leaders at all. People could have said, John, just stay in your lane, John. Just be the wilderness prophet. Have some locusts. Eat some wild honey and preach repent, but not to the leaders. Like they, you know, no, that didn't work with John. He openly preached against this marriage, this ongoing marriage. And it wasn't like John was like, well, I know, I know you blew up, but God can forgive you. It was like, no, this is something you need to be called out on. This is something that needs to be dealt with. Jesus, when he spoke of Herod, in Luke 13, 32, in Matthew 23, 29, he calls him that fox. That fox. Herod, that fox. And he speaks of him very demeaningly almost. He's like, you go tell that fox. Right? And he's like, I'm going to do these miracles. I got my work to do, and then I'll be glorified. This idea of, of uh, Herod being a fox, it seems to refer to him being crafty, deceitful, and lowly. And lowly. So he's speaking about this guy. He's, he's, he's the rightful, in a sense, ruler, sort of a puppet government, but he's rightful ruler, gov- you know, Roman-installed governor of Galilee, which is where Christ uh, dwelt. In Mark 8, 15, we'll get here later, and I'll get more into it later, but here's what he says, Jesus speaking. It says, he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And he specifically tells them, watch out for Herod's leaven, Herod's leavening or negative sinful effect on you. That's interesting. So I would say, let's watch out, whatever our political affiliations are, that we don't suck up the leaven of ungodly leaders that we think are championing causes we care about, but rather we remain pure and undefiled, set apart and different than the culture around us. 
So calling for moral reform is walking in the footsteps of Jesus and John the Baptist and the leaders of the past. And at the same time, we get Paul in the book of Acts when he encounters certain leadership and he does so purely evangelistically. He's doing it to reach out to them with the gospel truth. So it kind of depends on, on an individual side. I want to see them come to the Lord. But for the sake of the leaven, they, leavening effect they have on society, I need to call out the sin because people are being affected by it as well because they're leaders. At least that's my understanding of it. Verse 20, let's read on. For Herod feared John, this is why he wouldn't let his wife uh, have John killed, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. So they had an odd relationship, Herod and John. Herod liked to listen to John. He wanted to gladly hear him, but John was like rebuking Herod and telling him he was wrong. And Herod was probably like, yeah, I know. Because <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's what it seems like. You ever know people like, I've had relationships with people like this. They're like, yeah, you're right, Mike. I know, I know. But they'll never decide to follow Christ or haven't, you know, they, they just know it. So he's got John in prison. Notice he threw John in prison. So John can't publicly denounce him, but he will privately go listen to John. So it's just a weird scenario. He's interested in what John says, but he's perplexed, or another way to put that is bothered and confused by the things that John is saying. He won't follow him, but he won't totally cast him aside. He will arrest him, but he'll protect him from Herodias and her desire to have John killed. He'll go listen to him, but he won't do what he says. Very interesting. I think that people today are like this too. There's another example in the Old Testament of this, and that's Ezekiel. They have enough respect to listen to Ezekiel, but not perhaps to follow what he says. I think, and I could be wrong here, but I think Ezekiel may be, of all the prophets, um, the one who is, a, in, in more ways than others, a type of Christ. I um, I'm, I'm, I got to do a study one time. It's a giant book, Ezekiel. Just the typology of Christ throughout Ezekiel, I think it would be a really interesting study. Uh, but anyways, let's look at the concept in Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 30 through 33. And this is where we see Ezekiel had the same problem as John the Baptist, whereas they want to come listen to me, but they don't want to do what I say. They're interested in what I'm saying, but not for obedience. It's entertainment to them, which seems strange. But it's very real to us today as well. So Ezekiel 33, 30, it says, But as for you, son of man, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. This is what they're telling you. Let's all go listen to Ezekiel. But... Verse 31, they come to you as, a, as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. They would say, let's go listen to Ezekiel because he's going to give us God's word. But they viewed it as entertainment. It's like they want to sit and hear what seems to be these wonderful spiritual things, but they're treating it like it's entertainment, sensual songs sung, sung with music. Ezekiel was like this. He was treated like this, rather. I think John was treated like this by Herod. I want to hear you, but I don't want to do what you say. Jesus may have been treated this way, too. Um... In Luke 7, verse 31 through 35, he has a real puzzling statement he makes, and I'll try to unpack it if I can. Let me read it to you first. He describes John and him as these sort of two very opposite sides of a coin. It says in Luke 7, 31, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. A dirge is a funeral song. And you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. John came and he's fasting and he's doing all these things to show the path of repentance that leads to Christ. An attitude of repentance, right? Jesus comes and he's drinking and eating and enjoying feasting with people to show that the kingdom of God is among them and they can enter in now and enter that fellowship through Christ. So repentance into fellowship. That's the idea, right? 
Well, wisdom is justified by our children. Both of these paths were, were wise and were purposeful. How are they like children? Children are like, we sang a dirge and, and, and uh, you didn't cry. That's their attitude to Jesus. Jesus, we want you to be more, more fasting and more like, more like John was. And with John, they got upset because he was too serious, right? And too somber and too, he was fasting and withholding things from himself and all that. And they, and they complained about that. He's saying that the people wanted entertainment. When kids are, we played you a song, we wanted you to cry. That's not even sincere. They just want entertainment. We want you to dance the way we want you to dance to our tune. I like the preachers who, dot, dot, dot. Often what fills in the blank there is what entertains me. Instead of a heart of, I want to yield to the glory and goodness and truth of God. And I want to hear his truth and live it out in my life. You know, And that's, that's the focus that needs to be there. So I think the parallel today is we look at religion sometimes as entertainment. I want to have its place in my life. I just want to put it in its place in my life. right? Not where Christ takes over my life. And my life is in Christ and it's all about Christ. And it's for Christ. And it's, I live for him and in him. But rather, it's like, I just want some religion, you know? I need something for the funeral time. I need something at the wedding. I need something for when I'm down. I need something for around Christmas, Easter maybe. I need some religion. I just don't want too much, right? And I just want it to be what I want when I want it. And that might be the attitude some people have. Instead of realizing that we just got to yield to God. We got to yield to God. We don't, religion, if, if your religion's like Subway, right? Like you have it your way. Right, like I'll meatballs, I'll get some pickles on there. I don't know if those are a good combination, but you know, if, if that's what religion is to me, is I sort of construct my own religion, I can guarantee it's fake because I made it up. Like imagine if you go, I'm going to imagine my best imagination of a wife. Okay, yeah, but you know she's fake because you made her up. But you go home, and if, she really, if that's who you really see, you're a newlywed. <laughs> you just got married. That's like... Perfect in every way. But no, marriage, the glory of marriage is when you see the flaws and you stick with each other through all that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, like if you have this religion that's so perfectly suited to you, it changes for you instead of you changing for it, then you know you made it up. Anyway, verse 21, we'll read on. But Herodias wants to kill him. Herod won't do it. That's the context so far. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the girl, uh, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now everything is wrong with this picture. Every single thing is wrong. Everything's wrong with Herod's life. His whole life is messed up. But now he has his stepdaughter dancing seductively, that's the implication here, for the entertainment of these various noble people, the high up people in his kingdom. Just, she was probably a teen, the word used for daughter. She's probably a girl of marriageable age. She's probably a teenager at this point, some kind of a teen. Um, and this, this is, of course, where our culture is going, but it, it seems like it happens in the high ups in the high up locations of the rich and the wealthy that sometimes they have the most debauched stuff going on. And uh, and sure, that's what's happening here. Then he makes a vow. The vow isn't literal. Like he's literally, she's like, oh, half your kingdom? I'll take Galilee, you keep Perea. Like she's not, she's not, it's not that kind of half your kingdom. This vow is like a hyperbolic way of a king saying, I will grant you a fantastic favor, you know, up to half my kingdom. In other words, not something that threatens me. (laughs) Up to half, like not something that'll threaten me. That's the idea. Um, so it's a great gift, but one that doesn't compromise me. Um, why does he use such big words here? Why doesn't Herod just be like, "Here's a, I don't know, tickets to Disneyland. Have have a great time." Like, why doesn't he just give her a gift? Instead, he 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 tells her, "Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you." Why would he do this? To make himself look good. Right? To show the glory of Herod, the power of Herod. Everyone, I will declare she will have whatever she will, blah, 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 blah. And his head just filled up and filled the whole room. It makes him look good. It's arrogance. So here we have arrogance, lust, disgusting impurity in family. A man who should be protecting this girl is instead shopping her out as a source of seductive entertainment for others. We got all this stuff going on. And it's in the highest ranks. And our world is marching that way very quickly. 
especially with the popular um, the popularity of pornography nowadays. Uh, it is, you know, we always say, oh, things are getting worse. They're always getting worse. Well, they always look like they're getting worse, but sometimes they're actually getting worse. But the pornography things are actually getting worse. And it's normalizing horrible things. And it's becoming more and more normal. And we, we get this from media where they, they tend to, with TV shows, they tend to tap into the weirdest fringe groups of society and throw it in our faces like it's a normal thing. Like it's something that's expected when you go to college or something like that. Um, so yeah, we do see this kind of thing happening. And, I, and I just there's this beautiful word, repent. <laughs> this is what our culture needs, is to repent of these things and get back to purity and holiness and let it not even be named among us as believers, like the scripture says. This might be the reason why Herod listens to John but won't do what he says. And perhaps the reason why a lot of people listen and they want to hear religious things, they want to maybe watch a video about Christianity, but they don't want to like, let it change their life because it means I have to stop this sin. It means I have to change my lifestyle and I just don't want to do that down at the bottom. I don't want to change. Very sad. Verse 24, we read on, it says, And she went out and said to her mother, Okay, I have this great vow from Herod. She says to her mom, What should I ask? What do I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. This is how deep-seated her hatred of John is. For he's in prison, what can he do to her? But he keeps talking about how she's bad and how what she did was wrong. How dare you say that what I'm doing is wrong? Are you, are you saying I'm wrong? This is how Christians can quickly receive hatred in our culture. When we tell the culture, yeah, that's wrong and horrible. Oh, you judgmental. They're like, well, someone's judgmental right now. Right? Because someone's getting hated. <laughs> Someone wants to kill somebody. John didn't want to kill them. John wanted them to repent. They wanted to kill him. There's a big difference. So she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And then verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want, to give, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now Herodias knew this was just manipulating her husband, using his public vow to try to leverage to get him to do something he didn't want to do. And she knew this. He picked a winner, didn't he? It's <laughs> a great marriage they got. Um, and so she asks for John's head on a platter, as though it's like to put it on display, like just disgusting, make sport of his murder. And the king was exceedingly sorry, verse 26. But because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod was so worried about his ego and the ego blow of him not fulfilling this magnanimous vow he made that he'd rather commit murder. What's interesting is that there is such a thing as different levels of sin. Some sins are worse than others. It's certainly worse if you shoot me than it is if you steal my wallet. There's certainly one's worse than the other. But it seems as though the world has sometimes like a different view of what's the worst thing. And the worst thing is looking bad not actually being bad, right? This would, have, this would have looked really bad on his Instagram when he made this vow and it didn't happen. But killing of John, like a, a lot of people don't even care. At least not the people he cares about. And so he goes, goes through with it. Now there's some apologetic related challenges with this. And there's three of them that I'm going to mention. But I want to mention, um, and I'll probably put a link in the video description to this video as well. Um, there's a video by Inspiring Philosophy, who's a great Christian YouTuber. He has tons of really interesting content. And, um, and I don't agree with everything he said. I have to say this every time I mention anybody else's content, that I don't agree with everything they say. Um, he doesn't agree with everything I say, and I don't even know everything he says, and blah, blah, blah. But he has some videos on supposed Bible contradictions, and, the, and he has a great video on that. I want to mention I'll put it in there. And he goes through all this in much more detail. But there are three challenges about John the Baptist beheading relate to them saying it's not historical. There's something historically wrong with it. And the three challenges are this. The skeptic might say um, that the Bible in Mark is wrong about why, where, and how John was killed. Why, where, and how John was killed. They're wrong about why John was killed because Mark, it says that, um, that, uh, that this is happening in, um, in Galilee. Or excuse me, the why, not the, not the, not the, that's the where. We'll get to the where in a minute, the why. They're wrong about why 
uh, John was killed because in Mark, it's because of Herodias's hatred for him. Herodias hates John and wants to kill him. But Josephus, he's our first century Jewish historian, and I'll read to you a section where he talks about this. So here's, here's a first century historian talking about John the Baptist and how he died. That's already pretty interesting, isn't it? Here we go, extra biblical verification in some ways. So from his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 118, it says, Now many people came in, uh, came in crowds to him, for they were greatly moved by his words, speaking of John. John had a huge following. That's what he says. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. In this way, he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. So he thought, oh, I better get rid of him because if I don't, he might raise an army against me kind of thing. Um, that's, that's what Josephus says. So it's like Herodias, it's a personal grudge, and this is how the skeptic puts it, right? But Josephus, it's, a, it's, it's because John might be a revolutionary, might be a revolutionary. Now, the, I'll, I'll add a few things here in response. One, Josephus might be wrong. Okay, jo- I, I'm not saying he is wrong. I don't, I don't really think he's wrong so much here. But consider the possibility, because here's what we hear. If there's a historical account in the Bible that says something, and there's a historical account in any other source, no matter what it is, many people will say, well, the Bible must be wrong. Now, historians know that you have conflicting sources all the time. So just the existence of a conflicting source doesn't just automatically mean the Bible's wrong. That's called bias. That makes you assume the Bible's wrong if you have any source. You need to look at the source, look at how close they were to the information, ask you know, all these various questions. I would say it's possible that Josephus can be wrong, and he is wrong in other areas that we're aware of. Sometimes Josephus is wrong. But my second point is, uh, it doesn't have to be that way because it's not a contradiction. Um, a logic class might help here. When people try to posit Bible contradictions, they frequently fail to understand what contradiction means. A contradiction is not a difference. A contradiction is when two things cannot both be true at the same time. That's a contradiction, right? That's a contradiction. I'm a pastor. I'm also a husband. Contradiction! No, that's not a contradiction. That's not how it works. I'm a pastor. I'm also a teacup. There's a contradiction, right? Like These two cannot both actually be true at the same time. Um, So it's not a contradiction. Um, There's sort of the political side and the personal side. Outwardly, um, it was it was obvious that Herod felt John was some kind of problem because he threw him in prison in the first place, right? And what was John doing? He was railing against Herod's marriage, and that marriage had caused a war with the king of Nabatea, and they were now at war because of this bad immoral marriage. And so it's already you know giving the disgruntled people in Herod's kingdom more reason to rise up against him. So I could, you could see that Herod's like, you know, you're, you're preaching against me morally but it's affecting me politically. And so I could see how they would come against him. So then what Herod uh, did was he throws John in prison. Mark eventually gets, uh, John eventually gets killed because of the same thing. Herodias is mad for the same, possibly the same reasons, the same concerns. Herod's given credit. He, of course, gave the command. The, the command couldn't come from Herodias. It came from Herod. And Mark reflects what only the insider would know. Josephus reflects what the outsider would know. Mark reflects what the insider would know. Josephus, ah, he had John killed because he was causing problems for Herod's kingdom. Mark reflects the inside. Yes, they were at this banquet and Herodias did a dance and da-da-da-da. Why? Probably because Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, told us all about it. The next claim is that they're wrong about, uh, the gospel's wrong about where John was killed. Um, The skeptics will say that Mark pictures uh, John being killed in Galilee, in Galilee, and this is because the leading men of Galilee are there, and it's, so it's probably in Galilee, and the head is brought right then and there, it seems, right? His, the platter, all that. But from what we read in Josephus, Herod was in a, uh, would have been in a southern location called uh, Machaerus, which was a Roman fortress in the south part of his kingdom. Why? Because he was at war with the king of Nabatea in the south part of the kingdom. So he would have been in his fortress location, not up in his Galilee home, which was in Tiberias. Now, the answer to this is that Mark doesn't actually say where this was. The skeptic is suggesting that because leading men of Galilee were there, it must have been in Galilee. But when, when Herod the king 
you know, or the tetrarch throws a party, you go where the party is. Herod's not like, well, I better go to you and come near you if you're coming to my party. No, he had two major regions, Perea and Galilee. Maybe Perean leaders were there as well. Perhaps it was his birthday party, basically, right? Um, but men from Galilee came, and they were at that event. So it seems like these things um, harmonize really well. Yeah, I just don't see a problem. Mark doesn't tell us where. It just says people from Galilee were there. That makes sense. They just traveled down to be where the king was for his birthday. Then the third complaint is that it's possibly wrong about how John was killed. In Mark, the word is, in the Greek word, I'll give you the English version of it, is a speculator. The speculator, which is, shows you how words change over time. The king's guy who went and killed John is a speculator. Speculators obviously do different things nowadays, right? They're looking for gold or maybe they're working in the stock market, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but yes, this is a military officer. And what some skeptics would say is this isn't how it's done. Military officers don't perform executions. Civil officers do. It's the wrong person for the job. Except what information did we... That's in Mark, military officer. But in Josephus, we find that Herod would have been in Machaerus, which is the southern fortress, because he's at wartime, meaning that military officers have increased duties during those seasons. And so... This actually looks like a confirmation of the historicity of both Josephus and Mark because it's incidental details that work between them. So the speculators did do executions, but it was more of a wartime thing. These guys would show up during war, during military stuff. So I just think that's pretty cool. So on all three points, it seems like it fails. In fact, Josephus and Mark uh, harmonize really well in such a way that it encourages historicity. So what do we learn from the passage? (coughs) Pardon me. Um, I think we learn we learn lots of stuff. There's all kinds of lessons for us in this passage in Mark. One of them is that um, Herod went through all this stuff because he was wicked. He kept trapping himself in his sin, right? With Herodias, with um, with leaving his wife. It starts a war. He's then exposed himself to the to the negative public preaching of an influential man who he throws in prison. He then exposes himself because of his pride and his arrogance to the manipulation of Herodias to have John killed. He then goes through with it and kills the man. This is, this is all a shame on Herod. It wasn't too many years later when Herod lost his kingdom, actually. Um, partially as a result of all this kind of thing. Pride, like sin, is, 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 um, sin can devastate your life, but pride can lock you in it. And that's what we see with Herod. We see not only sin, but we see the pride that locks you in place and keeps you sort of bound to sin, unfortunately. The answer to that is, of course, humble yourself. Just humble yourself. See the light at the end of the tunnel, and the the tunnel is pride. And the light is humility and repentance and turning to Christ. If there's any issue in your life, in your walk with Christ, just deal with it. Don't hold back because of a stiff upper lip, you know, or a stiff neck, or whatever other analogy I can find for stubbornness. Don't do that. Just clear your accounts with the Lord and humbly come to him. We can also see that sexual sin is the downfall of great men and women. And that is consistent throughout history. In fact, it's the number one reason why I see people have serious, serious setbacks in their walk with Christ is because of some sexual sin in their life. It's the constant, constant issue. And it's something we have to take seriously. And because of the ability to have private sexual sin addiction in your pocket, nowadays. It's a radically increased issue and something we have to address. Um, like, it's, like it's the black plague. And we have to deal with it in our own hearts, in our own lives, and seek purity and not think, I can just keep getting away with it, get away with it, get away with it. You're already not getting away with it, maybe whether you realize it or not. It affects you. <clears throat> Finally, um, John's legacy. In John's legacy, he called people to repent but I imagine it didn't bring the change he hoped. I wonder if John felt disappointed with his ministry. We look back and we see him as this the greatest prophet, Jesus says. And we see him as this amazing guy. But think about it. He preaches to the people to repent, but it doesn't seem to, and, and a lot of people pay attention, and maybe even a lot repent, but it doesn't seem to bring about the national change that he's looking for. He was to prepare the way for Jesus, and what did they do? They rejected Jesus. I think he would have felt kind of down. When he's imprisoned later, he even gets confused about it. He's like, Jesus, are you the one? I think John would have been going through some hard stuff. I don't know how he felt when he got word that some dancing teenage girl is going to get his head cut off. This is not the glorious end to my ministry that I was looking for. 
I imagine he felt kind of disappointed. Why is he in prison? Finally, he's murdered. This is not the ministry that dreams are made of. And sometimes when we serve the Lord and we want to do great things for God in ministry, we have this picture of like whoever we think has been greatly successful serving God. And we're like, it'll be like that. It'll be like that, right? Like we don't think I'll have like a Jeremiah style ministry. Years of preaching with nobody listening. Like I don't think I'll have one of those. Yet looking back, we see Jeremiah as hugely successful, right? We see John as hugely successful. And my encouragement for us who serve the Lord is don't grow weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap. Don't quit, don't give up, and stop expecting it to work. I'm sorry to give you that news. Don't quit, don't give up, stop expecting it to work in any measurable way. You are only called to faithfulness in Christ. That's it. God is the fruit tester, and you're just the faithful messenger. That's it. I think John is an example for us here. John's rejected. Jesus actually gives commentary on how John is rejected in um, Matthew 17. Let me read it, verses 11 through 13. It says, And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So they did whatever they wanted to John. This is what they did. And guess what? They're going to do it to me too. Why do you think we're being told this? Because the bad news is they may do that to you. And they may do that to me. Don't be shocked or surprised when persecution happens. Now there's a difference here. I don't want us to have a persecution complex. A persecution complex is when you act like everything that happens to you is persecution, even when it's not. And the Bible never wants to create in Christians a persecution complex, which is basically a victim mentality where I take no responsibility for my actions and I just read hatred into everything everyone does to me. That guy cut me off because I'm a Christian. I know it. You know? Like, my family relations are bad. It's, it's purely because I'm a Christian. It's not because I'm so rude to them. You know, it's, you know, that... We don't want a victim mentality. Really what the Bible wants is not a persecution complex amongst Christians. We have, to, we have to rid ourselves of that in every way possible. But he wants us to be willing to lay our lives down. That's what it's trying to create. A willingness to lay my life down. So that I have no complex about persecution. I simply won't stop because of persecution. That's it. I just won't stop because of it. I'm willing to lay my life down. So we're, we're to create a selflessness. A, a persecution complex creates selfishness but a willingness to take your cross up and lay your life down, that creates a selflessness. And that's where we want to go with it. And let me share this with you because I think it's appropriate. This is appropriate commentary on John's death, on Jesus' death, and on our potential persecution. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. You know the passage, but listen to it again. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is the mentality we need to have. We see how John was treated, mistreated, and ultimately killed. And I don't know what kind of mistreatment we might face in our lives, not to create a victim mentality in any way, shape, or form, but to take up our cross and realize No matter what the world does to me in Christ, I am a victor. I have a victorious mentality regardless of those things. Now, this is no small task to have this kind of work in your heart. 
But one of the things the scripture does is it reinforces this and helps build it into us. And when I read passages like this, I think, Lord, if persecution, real persecution hits me, I pray I'm ready for it. I pray I'm able to hold my chin up and walk forward in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, um, <clears throat> for the testimony of John the Baptist and to, to see that he went through real struggles and real trials and uh, to see how he was treated. Um, it's encouragement to us not to be crybabies, <laughs> but to hold our chin up and to press on in serving you and trusting your sovereignty and knowing that you have a plan for our ministry that isn't necessarily, necessarily the plan that we might have. And that's fine. We pray. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to serve you well, to serve you patiently, unceasingly, and that you be glorified in our lives through the great growth of our ministry or through our shrinking and to do so with, um, with faith. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.